Section 28 of The Waning of the Middle Ages, A Study of the Forms of Life, Thought, and Art in France and the Netherlands in the 14th and 15th centuries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Waning of the Middle Ages by Johann Hutzinger. Translated by Frederick Jan Hopman. Verbal and Plastic Expression Compared to Part 2 In all that concerns the expression of love, literature profited by the models and the experience of a long series of past centuries. Masters of such diversity of spirit as Plato and Ovid, the troubadours and the wandering students, Dante and Jean Damon, had bequeathed to it a perfected instrument. Pictorial art, on the contrary, having neither models nor tradition, was primitive in the strict sense of the word, in respect of erotic expression. Not till the eighteenth century was painting to overtake literature in point of delicate expression of love. The artist of the fifteenth century had not yet learned to be frivolous or sentimental. In the miniatures of that time, the posture of lovers embracing remains hieratic and solemn. A portrait of a Dutch gentlewoman, Lisbeth of Doevenvoorde, by an unknown master before 1430, shows a figure of such severe dignity that a modern scholar has taken the picture for a donor's portrait, omitting to read the words on the scroll she bears in her hand. Quote, Mi verdriet lange te hopen, wie ist hij die sin hert haut open? That is, I am weary of hoping so long. Who is he who holds his heart open? End quote. Pictorial expression knew no middle term between the chaste and the obscene. The rendering of erotic subjects was rare, and what there is of it is naive and innocent. Once more, however, we must bear in mind that the greater number of profane works have disappeared. It would be most interesting to be able to compare the nude of Van Eyck in his Bath of Women, which Fazio saw, with that of his Adam and Eve. As to the latter picture, it must not be imagined that the erotic element is lacking. Following the rules of the code of feminine beauty of this time, the artist made the breasts small and placed them too high, the arms are long and thin, the belly prominent, but he did so quite ingenuously and with no intention of giving sensual pleasure. A small picture in the Leipzig gallery, occasionally designated as belonging to the school of Jan van Eyck, represents a girl in a room. She is nude, as magical practices require, and is employing witchcraft to force her lover to show himself. Here, the intention is present, and the artist has succeeded in expressing the erotic sentiment. The nude figure has the demure lasciviousness which reappears in those of Cranach. It is most improbable that the restraint thus displayed in fifteenth-century art in respect of erotic expression was due to a sense of modesty, for in general an extreme license was tolerated. Though pictorial art cultivated it very little as yet, the nude occupied a large place in the tableau vivant. The personages of nude goddesses or nymphs, played by real women, were rarely wanting at the entries of princes. These exhibitions took place on platforms, and occasionally even in the water, like that of the sirens who swam in the Lys, quote, quite naked and dishevelled as they paint them, end quote near the bridge over which Duke Philip had to pass on his entry into Ghent in 1457. The judgment of Paris was the favourite subject. 
these representations should be taken neither as proofs of high aesthetic taste nor gross licentiousness but rather as naive and popular sensuousness jean de roy speaking of sirens that were seen not very far from a calvary on the occasion of louis eleventh's entry into paris in fourteen sixty one says quote, and there were also three very handsome girls representing quite naked sirens and one saw their beautiful turgid separate round and hard breasts which was a very pleasant sight and they recited little motets and bergerettes and near them several deep-toned instruments were playing fine melodies Molinet tells us of the pleasure which the people of antwerp felt at the entry of philippe le beau in fourteen ninety four when they saw the judgment of paris Quote, but the stand at which the people looked with the greatest pleasure was the history of the three goddesses represented nude by living women how far removed from the greek sense of beauty was the parody of this theme got up for the entry of charles the bold at lille in fourteen sixty eight where were seen a corpulent venus a thin juno and a hunchbacked minerva each wearing a gold crown these nude spectacles remained customary during the sixteenth century durer in the diary of his journey in the netherlands described the one he saw at antwerp at the entry of charles v in fifteen twenty one and as late as fifteen seventy eight william of orange at his entry in brussels saw among other items a chained and nude andromeda quote, which one would have taken for a marble statue end quote. the inferiority of pictorial as compared with literary expression is not confined to the domain of the comic the sentimental and the erotic the expressive faculty of the art of this period fails as soon as it is no longer supported by that extraordinary turn for visualizing which explains the marvels of its pictures when more is required than the direct and accurate vision of reality the superiority of pictorial expression at once vanishes and then is felt the justice of michelangelo's criticism that this art aims at achieving several things at the same time of which a single one would be important enough to demand the devotion of all its powers let us once more consider a picture by jan van eyck in so far as accurate observation suffices his art is perfect especially in facial expression the material of the dresses and the jewellery as soon as it becomes necessary to reduce reality in some sort to a scheme as in the case when buildings and landscapes have to be painted certain weaknesses appear in spite of the charming intimacy of his perspectives there is a certain incoherence a defective grouping the more the subject demands free composition and the creation of a new form the more his powers fall short it cannot be denied that in the illuminated breviaries the calendar pages surpass in beauty those representing sacred subjects to picture a month it suffices to observe and reproduce accurately on the other hand to compose an important scene full of movement with many personages needed the sense of rhythm and of unity which giotto possessed and which michelangelo recaptured now multiplicity was a characteristic of fifteenth-century art it rarely succeeds in finding harmony and unity the central part of the altarpiece of the lamb does indeed show this harmony in the severe rhythm in which the different processions of adorers are advancing towards the lamb but this effect has been obtained so to say by a purely arithmetical coordination van eyck evaded the difficulties of the composition by grouping his personages in a very simple figure the harmony is static not dynamic 
The great distance separating Van Eyck from Rogier van der Weyden lies in the fact that the latter is aware of a problem of rhythmical composition. He limits himself in the use of detail in order to find unity, it is true, without always succeeding. There was a venerable and severe tradition regulating the representation of the most important sacred subjects. The artist had not to invent the composition of his picture. For some of these subjects, rhythmical composition came, so to speak, of itself. It was impossible to paint a descent from the cross, a pietà, an adoration of the shepherds, without the composition assuming a certain rhythmical structure. It suffices to remember the descent from the cross by Rogier van der Weyden in the Escurial, his Pietà at Madrid, or those of the Avignon school at the Louvre and at Brussels, those by Petrus Christus, by Gertgen of saint Jan, the Belles Heures d'Ailly. The very nature of the subject implied a simple and severe composition. As soon as the scene to be represented required more movement, as in the case of Christ being mocked, or bearing the cross, or in the adoration of the Magi, the difficulties of the composition increase, and a certain unrest and lack of harmony is the result. Here, however, iconographic tradition still supplies a model of a kind, but where it fails him altogether, the artist of the fifteenth century is almost helpless. We need but notice the feebleness of composition in the scenes in Courts of Justice by Dirk Boots and by Gérard David, though the solemnity of the subject itself called for an element of severity. The composition reaches an irritating pitch of clumsiness in scenes like the martyrdom of St. Erasmus at Louvain and that of St. Hippolytus, torn to pieces by horses at Bruges. And yet, here we are, still dealing with the representation of scenes borrowed from reality. When the whole has to be created by the unaided imagination, the art of the period cannot avoid the ridiculous. Pictures on the grand scale were saved by the solemnity of their subjects, but the illuminators could not evade the task of giving a shape to all the mythological and allegorical fancies of which literature was full. The illustrations by Jean Mielot for the Epître d'Othea à Hector, a mythological fancy of Christine de Pizan's, may serve as sample. It is impossible to imagine anything more awkward. The Greek gods have large wings outside their ermine mantles, and Hoopeland of brocade. Saturn devouring his children, Midas awarding the prize, are simply ridiculous and devoid of all charm. Yet whenever the illuminator sees a chance of enlivening the prospect by a little scene, such as a shepherd with his sheep, he shows the ability common to the period. Within his province his hand is sure. The reason is that there, that here we have come to the limit of the creative faculties of these artists. Easily masters of their craft, so long as observation of reality is their guide, their mastery fails at once when imaginative creation of new motifs is called for. Imagination, both literary and artistic, had been led into a blind alley by allegory. The mind had grown accustomed simply to turn into pictorial presentments the allegorical ideas presenting themselves to the mind. Allegory linked the presentment to the thought and the thought to the presentment. The desire to describe accurately the allegorical vision caused all demands of artistic style to be lost sight of. The cardinal virtue of temperance has to carry a clock to represent rule and measure. We see her with this attribute on a tomb, the work of Michel Colomb in Nantes Cathedral, and on that of the cardinals of Amboise at Rouen. The illuminator of the Epître d'Othea, to conform to this rule, 
simply puts on her head a timepiece resembling the one with which he ornaments the room of Philip the Good. The allegorical figure can only be justified by a tradition which has become venerable. Invented all of a piece, it is rarely satisfactory. The more realistic the mind which creates it, the more bizarre and factitious its form will be. Chastelin, in his Exposition sur Vérité Malprise, sees four ladies coming to accuse him. They call themselves indignation, reprobation, accusation, vindication. This is how he describes the second, quote, This dame here appeared to have accurate conditions and very tart and biting reasons. She ground her teeth and bit her lips, often nodded her head, and, showing signs of being argumentative, jumped on her feet and turned to this side and to that. She proved to be impatient and inclined to contradict. The right eye was closed and the other open. She had a bag full of books before her, of which she put some into her girdle, as if they were dear to her. The others she threw away, spitefully. She tore up papers and leaves. She threw writing-books into the fire, furiously. She smiled on some and kissed them. She spat on others, out of meanness, and trod them underfoot. She had a pen in her hand, full of ink, with which she crossed out many important writings— also with a sponge she blackened some pictures. She scratched out others with her nails, and others again. She erased wholly and smoothed them, as if to have them forgotten, and showed herself a hard and fell enemy to many respectable people, more arbitrarily than reasonably. Elsewhere he sees Dame Peace spread out her mantle and break up into four new ladies, peace of heart, peace of mouth, seeming peace, peace of true effect. Or he invents female figures, which he calls, quote, importance of your lands, various conditions and qualities of your several peoples, the envy and hatred of Frenchmen and of neighboring nations, end quote. As if politics lent themselves to allegory. It is no living fancy, of course, which prompts him to imagine these quaint figures, but only reflection. All wear their names written on scrolls, he evidently imagines them as figures on tapestry or in a picture or a show. There is not a trace of true inspiration here. It is the pastime of an exhausted mind. Though the authors always place their action in the setting of a dream, their phantasmagorias never resemble real dreams, such as we find in Dante and Shakespeare. They do not even keep up the illusion of real vision. Chastelin naively calls himself in one of his poems, quote, the inventor or the imaginer of this vision, end quote. Only the note of raillerie can still make the arid field of allegory flower again, as in these lines of Deschamps, quote, Physicien, comment fait droit? Sur même, il est un petit point. Que fait raison? Perdue à son entendement, elle parle mais faiblement, et justice est toute idiote. Footnote. Physician, what about law? By my soul, he is poorly. How does reason? She's out of her mind. She speaks but feebly. And justice is quite crazy. End of footnote. The different spheres of literary fancy are mixed up regardless of all homogeneity of style. The author of the Pastorale dresses his political shepherds in a tabard ornamented with fleur-de-lis and lions rampant. Quote, shepherds in long cassocks, end quote, represent the clergy. Molinet muddles up religious, military, heraldic, and amorous terms in a proclamation of the Lord to all true lovers. Quote, Nous, Dieu d'amour, créateur, 
roi de gloire, salue à tous vrais amants d'homble l'affaire. Comme il soit vrai que depuis la victoire de notre fils sur le mont de Calvaire, plusieurs soldats, par peur de connaissance de nos armes, font au diable alliance. End quote. Footnote. We, God of love, creator, king of glory, all hail to all true lovers of humble mind. As it is true that since the victory of our son on Mount Cavalry, several soldiers, through lack of knowledge of our arms, make an alliance with the devil. End of footnote. Therefore, the true blazon is described to them, Escutcheon Argent, Chief Or, with five wounds, and the Church Militant is given full liberty to take all into her service who want to return to that blazon. The feats which procured Molinet the reputation of an excellent rhetoricard and poet appear to us rather as the extreme degeneration of a literary form nearing its end. He takes pleasure in the most insipid puns. Quote, Et ainsi demeura l'excluse en paix qui lui fut incluse, car la guerre fut d'elle excluse, plus solitaire que rencluse. Footnote. And so, Sluis remained in peace, that was included with her, for war was excluded from her, lonelier than a recluse. End of footnote. In the introduction to his prose version of the Roman de la Rose, he plays upon his name, Molinet, quote, Et afin que je ne perde le froment de ma labeur, et que la farine que en sera mollue puisse avoir fleur salutaire, j'ai intention, ce Dieu m'en donne la grâce, de tourner et convertir sous mes rudes meules le vicieux au vertueux, le corporel en les spirituels, la mondanité en divinité, et souverainement de la moraliser. Et par ainsi nous tirerons le miel hors de la dure pierre, et la rose vermeille hors de poignants espines, où nous trouverons grains et graines, fruits, fleurs et feuilles, tresses, oeuvres, odeurs, odorants, verdure, verdoyant, floriture, florissant, nourriture, nourrissant, fruits et fructifiant, pasture. End quote. Footnote. And lest I lose the wheat of my labor, and that the meal into which it will be ground may have wholesome flour, I intend, if God gives me the grace for it, to turn and convert under my rough millstones the vicious into the virtuous, the corporal into the spiritual, the worldly into the divine, and above all to moralize it. And in this way we shall gather honey from the hard stone and the verme rose from sharp thorns, where we shall find grains and seed, fruit, flower, and leaf, very sweet odor, odoriferous verdure, verdant fluorescence, flourishing nurture, nourishing fruit, and fruitful pasture. End of footnote. When they do not play upon words, they play upon ideas. Meschinot makes prudence and justice the glasses of his lunettes des princes, force the frame and temperance the nail which keeps the whole together. The poet receives the aforesaid spectacles from reason, with directions how to use them. Sent by heaven, reason enters his mind, and wants to feast there, but finds nothing off which to dine well, for despair has spoiled all. Products like these would seem to betray mere decadence and senile decay. Thinking of Italian literature of the same period, the fresh and lovely poetry of the Quattrocento, we may perhaps wonder how the form and spirit of the Renaissance can still seem so remote from the regions on this side of the Alps. 
it requires some effort and some reflection to realize that exactly in these artifices of style and wit we witness the coming of the renaissance in the shape it took outside italy to contemporaries this far-fetched form meant the renewal of art end of section twenty eight read by sandra near montreal twenty twenty one